So I'm continuing today. Uh, this is part two of a series on mental health and faith uh, as I podcast and blog uh, what will be a book I'm writing on mental health and faith. And I'm looking today at our reluctance. Uh, nobody um, signs up for poor mental health and it's a difficult journey to go on. So how can we begin to admit to ourselves that we are struggling and we need help? And if you are struggling, I hope that what I share with you today will help you make the first steps in the journey of finding the support and the resources that God has for you. Say goodbye to your wife. You're about to die. A little more than 20 years ago, I heard those words as I awoke on my first day as a full-time pastor. I had planted a church with my wife. I had three very young children and, and I'd been bivocational for about three years. I'd worked at a rate and level I would have berated my friends for and counselled church members against. I'd resigned from my day job, completing my last day in the City of London working in finance, commuted home and celebrated with an early night, and it had all finally caught up with me. The voice I heard was loud and audible, as if someone stood over me speaking. Adrenaline and fear took hold of me, my heart pounding in my ears. I was flung upright in bed, struggling to breathe as I had my first panic attack. I'd awoken from a lucid dream where I knew I was dreaming. I can still recall it now, all these years later. I was running around a house that was full of sombre people at a wake. They were sad because someone they loved had died, talking in respectfully hushed voices as people do after a funeral. I wondered whose funeral it was, so I went around asking those present. But they all ignored me. I realised they couldn't see or hear me, even though I could see and hear them. And I became more and more panicked, running around the house, up and down the stairs, in and out of many rooms, eventually shouting at someone as loudly as I could, Who died? I finally got my reply. Before me, a nameless person turned slowly and calmly to me, and suddenly everyone else turned too. All eyes now laid upon me in an unnatural and eerie unison. They all said the same thing. You died. That was the moment I awoke and heard that voice that then triggered my first panic attack. I've never heard an audible voice from God, but I knew and know this was not his voice. I suspect it was diabolical in its origins and intentions. One of the strange things about that first panic attack was that I had no idea it was a panic attack. I was struggling to breathe and hyperventilating as if the room had no air, dizzy, disoriented and terrified. I couldn't stop what was happening to me. It had taken me over. My poor wife was by now shocked into wakefulness and asking me what was wrong. I went into the bathroom, splashed cold water on my face and the dread followed me there and then back to my bed. Eventually, whatever it was receded into a low-level background rumbling of foreboding. Little did I realise that this was the first of many panic attacks that would assail me several times a day, every day. They would sneak up with little forewarning, unbidden. It was over six months before they tamped down and nine before they ceased. I had some other symptoms that had arrived with this first panic attack and now infected my every moment of consciousness. I can readily write about them now at a distance from the experience of them, but at the time they were so distressing... I thought I was losing my mind. When I looked in the mirror, it was as if I was looking at someone else. I raised my hand to look at it, but it felt like it belonged to someone else. I'd become a stranger in my own body. Then everyone around me 
and everything felt flat, drained of colour and unreal, as if I was in a bad dream from which I could not wake up. I would try to wake up by slapping my face with a hand that wasn't mine. I would sometimes sit with my hands covering my face, rocking back and forth to comfort myself, screaming silently to myself to wake up. I later learned that these sensations were the natural consequence of my body flooded with adrenaline from prolonged anxiety and over-breathing from my hypervigilance. I'd spent so many years listening out for danger, starting from a very early age. The abuse that my mother meted out could come at any moment. My primary defence was what I called my spider sense, a kind of danger radar that protected me. I'd learned to read the atmosphere in our house without ever having to hear or see my mother. Uh, and I knew when the next storm of verbal and physical abuse might break over me. Like thunderclouds and a change in the air before a squall, I could smell and taste the impending peril. I'd taken that way of surviving as a child, a necessary defence mechanism of scanning for menace, into the rest of my life. I left home at 18, escaping the imminent danger of my mother, but I couldn't switch off my danger radar. What once kept me safe was now extensively hurting me, aged 30. I had no idea what was happening to me, who or where to ask for help and where to begin, so I did as most people do, experiencing such sensations. I hoped it would go away. But it didn't, and the more I tried to ignore it, the worse it got. By now, my symptoms were making themselves visible to others. During a church meeting in my house, my home, something triggered a panic attack. I can't recall what was said, but it was undoubtedly due to my traumatised limbic system detecting threats where there were none. I bid people excuse me, and I held my breath as I first walked and then fled upstairs when out of sight. A bit like rushing to the toilet before you wet yourself in front of others. I made it to my bedroom just in time for the first deep gasp of the panic attack that engulfed me. One of the people at the meeting was a mental health nurse, Elaine. She had immediately understood what had come over me and asked my wife if she might pursue me to help me. They both entered my bedroom. I remember the sense of shame that washed over me which ramped up the intensity of my panic attack. Elaine gently sat down next to me, spoke calmly and caringly and explained what was happening to me, that I was having a panic attack. She asked my wife to locate a paper bag and then, with my permission, had me hold it over my face and breathe in and out, in and out, re-breathing my outward breaths, lowered the oxygen in my blood from hyperventilating and helped calm me. That bag became my biggest helper, tucked into my pocket, always by my side, just touching it and knowing I had it to hand would help calm me. I also anthropomorphised it, drawing a smiley face on it with a sharpie so it would be a friend helping me rather than an object reminding me of the paucity of my condition. It didn't, however, stop the panic attacks from happening. Now, Elaine suggested I get some help, but even then I was too proud, too stubborn, or most likely too scared to take any next steps. After the shame of a paper bag and being seen like this, I hoped things would now get better, but they got worse before I finally looked for the help I needed. A reluctant journey. Poor mental health can be one of the most lonely and painful illnesses experienced by those who suffer and for those caring for the afflicted. Often surrounded by misunderstanding, stigma and shame, it is unlike other diseases. We can point to physical ailments and have a doctor touch where it hurts, an infected wound or a broken leg. Instead, admitting to and facing up to mental illness 
is like trying to catch a glimpse of the back of your head in a mirror with another mirror. Elusive, complicated and disorienting. Mental illness is a journey none of us want to undertake, but we can only refuse it for so long once it comes upon us. For the longer we deny its effects on us, the worse it becomes. Like a warning light on our car's dashboard, where ignoring it makes what happens next much worse. People are prone to avoiding a doctor for physical symptoms, and even more so for the help and support mental illness require. We just want to get back to normal. Things will be better next week, we tell ourselves, but they get worse. We might try some blunt self-advice, pull yourself together, tough it out, or we reach for something, alcohol, drugs, exercise, or as I did, the excess of extra work to numb the pain and cope just for now. But only for now becomes all the time as our ways of coping begin to break down. Eventually, we or others realise that we need help. The route to healing and meeting Jesus in our suffering can seem like an agony on top of what we already suffer. For the ordeal of mental illness is overcome by the more extraordinary agony of dying to ourselves. If we want to get better, we must walk all the way into what ails us and take it to the cross of Christ. The pathway to Jesus is strewn with things from our past, things done to us, then there are things we have done to ourselves and things we have avoided for so long as we accumulate coping methods that eventually distort, turn back in upon us and harm us. Here is the threshold that mental illness brings us to and invites us to explore for a dying to self and experiencing the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if I can be really honest with you, some of us are so good for so long at avoiding dying to ourselves. We say we follow Jesus and we know we need to pick up our cross, but we don't. And we spent so long avoiding the cross with parts of our lives that when we come to this place with the distress of mental health, the real remedy is the cross. And now is the time to face it and pick it up and go to it. Jesus is to be found not separate to or away from, but within our anguish. Jesus himself suffered the most intense mental distress and anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. He suffered his own, and he took yours upon himself. Luke 22, Matthew 26, Mark 14. Your distress is what put him, Jesus, on the cross as he suffered for and with you. As painful as it is and will be if you make this journey, you will find Jesus. Once I set my mind to getting help and support, it seemed surprisingly difficult at the time. Mental health seemed to carry more stigma then than now. Mind you, it's still freighted with a great deal today, and there were fewer resources readily available to access them. It seemed through trial and error that I managed to locate things that helped me get better, and I found what did not. And over the years, I've had the opportunity to share my experiences and the things I discovered in others' pastoral care, the care of others. In terms of crossing the threshold for getting help, these learnings eventually distilled down to three domains, three areas for engagement, participation and practice. Time and time again, people that I care for have told me that these three things have helped them the most. So as initial steps for better mental health, I'm going to share them with you next. These three things are the most practical advice I can offer you. And I've presented these three things in a particular order. Medical help, then therapy and prayer. Of course, prayer surrounds all three and is over all three. 
Life is not a neat three-step process either, but they are a travel direction, a checklist to ensure adequate preparation and equipping for the journey into your mental health and healing. If you need it, I hope you join me for the rest of this series. So uh, thank you for listening. Um, If you want to catch more of these articles and podcasts, Everything is on my website, jasonswanclark.org. That's jasonswanclark, all one word, noeonclark.org. And uh, on there, you'll be able to subscribe to uh, an email newsletter um, to push updates to you for new articles um, and all the recordings. Also, you can subscribe to this audio podcast in Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes, and wherever else you catch your podcast from. Um, and lastly, thank you for listening. And if you found this helpful, please like and do share with others. <laughs>